Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. He who wants to persuade, wrote the author, Joseph Conrad, should put his trust not in the right argument, but in the right word. The power of sound has always been greater than the power of sense. Give me the right word and the right accent, and I will move the world. Well, Boris Johnson didn't quite move the world with his annual leader speech at Tory party conference this week, but then, let's face it, he wasn't really trying to. What we heard from the Prime Minister was the usual heady mix of boundless optimism. That is the spirit that is the same across this country in every town and village and city. Of bluster. We've done already 68 free trade deals, including that great free trade deal with our friends in the EU, which they all said was impossible. Of utter shamelessness. Very few countries could have pulled off the Kabul airlift. An astonishing feat by our brave armed forces. And of course, of comedy gold. And we knew that some people would still be anxious. So we sent top government representatives to our sweatiest boîte de nuit to show that anyone could dance perfectly safely. And wasn't he brilliant, my friends? Let's hear it. Let's hear it for John Bon Jovi. Now, Johnson, as you may be aware, is something of an anomaly among modern politicians in that he actually writes all his big speeches himself. Friends tell me he is fiercely protective of every joke and every line and infuriates colleagues because he's invariably still working madly on the speech the very morning that he's due to deliver it. A journalist, then, to the last. Here's his former director of comms, Lee Kane, who I interviewed at length for last week's podcast, describing the chaotic process behind what he believes was one of Johnson's best ever speeches at the victory rally the morning after the 2019 election. I remember we were sat in the office at CCHQ and he was sort of taps away very loudly on his computer. It's like one of those, you know, proper bangs away at the keys like an old typewriter. He just sits there writing them himself, does he? He does like to write everything himself. He's very, very proud and passionate of, of what he puts out. He's very aware of the importance of language and he, you know, he, he wants to own all of that, which I think is, is actually a huge asset. He can write, you know, the way he could definitely write. So, you know, we would all feed it and say, you know, I'd well, remove this, I'd add this, I'd do that, and then, you know, sort of make the changes. But on that particular night, everybody was very happy that we'd, uh, that we'd, you know, that we'd won. There's a lot of celebrations going on. And I remember sort of just one sleep on the chair next to him and he was sort of bashing away. And it's like this tiny seat and a half chair that I was trying to sort of lie on at four in the morning as he was sort of bashing away. And then we sort of went over to the rally event. And I think that sort of speech of, you know, you people have lent us their votes and we need to deliver, I think was hugely, hugely powerful. And I think that just feel like it set the whole tone for the administration. I will make it my mission to work night and day flat out to prove you right in voting for me this time and to earn your support in the future. And I say to you that in this election, your voice has been heard and about time. I think we really helped shape how people viewed this government. It wasn't just a continuation of Tory rule. You know, it wasn't the same government since 2010. This was now Boris's administration. This was going to do things differently. We're going to focus on the priorities that we've outlined. But in stark contrast to Johnson, almost every other party leader of the modern age has a speechwriter 
for a whole team of speechwriters working on their every major address. And while the odd one has subsequently stepped out blinking into the spotlight themselves, Barack Obama's chief speechwriter, John Favreau, now hosts the wildly popular Pod Save the World podcast, which supposedly gets even more downloads than this one. For the most part, these humble scribes remain in the shadows, out of sight, receiving little or no public acclaim for their work. Yet these are the people who choose the words and sculpt the phrases that we associate best with so many of our frontline politicians. They make us laugh. The brilliant thing about it was David Miliband, who was facing William, he was in stitches. The Labour side was corpsing. They make us weep. So I've shown that to students and they start crying. They've probably even helped elect a prime minister or two. The atmosphere in the hall at the time was pretty extraordinary. And actually, I even thought to myself then, it's like, the prime minister is not going to call this election after that speech. So as party conference season draws to a close, I thought it would be fun to go and find me a speechwriter or two and hear exactly how they go about their craft. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm asking how you write a great political speech and what it's like to then stand on the sidelines while your boss delivers it to the world. This hasn't always... This hasn't always been an easy conference. If you've ever given a big speech, perhaps at a political rally or at a conference or even a large wedding, there's one thing more likely to inject fear into your heart than any other. The spectre of a hostile heckler. Because they didn't believe that our promises were credible. To the voters, to the voters... For Keir Starmer belatedly giving the first major speech of his Labour leadership last week, the nightmare of a partly hostile crowd became a sudden, jarring reality. So, 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 you see... But Starmer, as you probably heard, was armed and ready to respond. Shouting slogans or changing lives conference. Starmer spoke for an hour and a half at Labour conference. An hour and a half. But it was the hecklers and the way he dealt with them that captured the headlines. His speech, considered a make-or-break moment by some within the party, was at times interrupted by hecklers. Starmer's speech, including his comebacks to the hecklers, had been largely written by Philip Collins, once Tony Blair's chief speechwriter in Downing Street and now a columnist with the London Evening Standard. He agreed to talk me through the preparation and the thought process behind Starmer's big moments in Brighton. You are aware there might be a negative reaction. You can never be entirely ready for it. So although absolutely he was prepared, it would have been unprofessional not to be prepared, you can't be sure of the nature of the intervention or of what kind of thing would be the appropriate response. So a lot rests on the person up there on their own on the podium. So I still think he deserves credit for handling it well because it's not easy. And then what happened after the first intervention by the the hecklers, I think he said something like, normally it's the, at this time on a Wednesday, it's the Tories who are heckling me. This, this is a... At this time on a Wednesday, it's normally the Tories that are heckling me. doesn't bother me then. <laughs> it not bother me now. Now, of course, the conference hall loved that. And so at that point, they all started to get up and give him standing ovations to show they were on his side, which was great. 
I won't stand for two million incidents of antisocial behaviour this year. I won't stand for record levels of knife crime that we have in this country today. And I won't stand for nine out of ten crimes going unsolved. But he was getting stunning ovations for things that were just basically like boring lines that were meant to just take you to the next stage of the speech. And it got ridiculous. Thank you, conference. Thank you, conference. I think he had 20 standing ovations or something and clapping for all sorts of things, which really elongated the speech. And it was a really nice feeling. And he was delighted because it, it real sense of the conference coming to his aid. But it did mean that the momentum was a bit lost, then took longer to get through than you ever thought it would have done. Because in actual word count, it wasn't even an especially long speech. It's just it took so long because the theatre of it took over. The main thread of Starmer's speech was not, in fact, an attack on the left-wingers who tried to hijack the occasion. Not that you'd have known it from the headlines the following day. It was actually a highly personal discussion of his parents, his background and the values that supposedly drive him today. Starmer's father, as you presumably are now very aware, was a toolmaker at a factory when he was growing up a theme the Labour leader returned to again and again throughout his speech. My dad worked on the shop floor all his life. He gave me a deep respect for the dignity of work. I like things to echo. I like things to come back. So, you know, the history of his mother and father and what they'd given to him and how that had created an intellectual legacy that then led into the, the Labour Party policy. These things are linguistic ways of linking a speech which I I quite like it's not unlike writing a newspaper column or a cabaret act where you're doing the same sorts of things where a good gag is often the return of an idea that somebody had earlier in a new form it's pleasurable to feel the resolution we get that in fiction too you know if we, we you go all the way through a book and then the that sort of stops before the penultimate chapter, it's very unsatisfying. And so the audience does like all of that. It likes things to be tied up. And at the same time, reminding the audience constantly of something which Keir Starmer is obviously keen to remind people of, which is that his family have this background in industry. Yes, exactly. And one of the things which is notable is that um, most people don't know much about Keir Starmer. And when they are told about his actual life, rather than the life they imagine for him, which as a well-dressed, well-heeled man, they just assume he's really posh. When they discover that he isn't, he goes up in their estimation. So actually, it was a very conscious choice to make a large part of the address an introduction to him. The key to it is to then take that through and say, and these things which are in my past are the explanation of why I'm here today before you and give you a clue as to what I will be like in the future. It's not just personal revelation. It has to be character development. I used to think Ed Miliband used to do this quite badly because Ed would do lots of personal revelation, but it wasn't character development. Nothing followed from it. They were just random events that once upon a time happened to me. You know, kind of vaguely interesting, but so what? A story in the character of a public person is not just the things that have happened in your life. It's those things which have happened in your life which have had prolonged effect such that your politics can in some way be explained by them. And that's different from your actual autobiography. It's much more crafted. So the reason it was valuable for Keir Starmer to talk about himself and his mother and the way that he did is because that shows why he is the politician he's staying, why he cares about public services. 
and so on. Exactly. Exactly. It roots it in something. There's a reason for these things. They don't just drop from the sky. But the delivery is absolutely vital. Great speakers can make a lot with very limited material. And it is possible for very poor speakers to ruin what otherwise would be a good address. Tony Blair will be remembered as a, as a great public speaker, I think. I'm not sure Keir Starmer's quite there yet. Do politicians develop and get better as they do this stuff more? They do, but a bit like sport there's probably a limit probably there's this kind of talent that you have and some people just are going to be better than others you're right Blair always had it he had a theatrical element to him and he loved it he he relished it Keir doesn't relish it as much but he's getting better and I think the character that Keir Starmer can develop over time is slightly more professorial and then slightly more loyally and forensic and so I do think he's got a lot to go on but there are limits to what people can be and how they are but think of Mrs Thatcher when she started out she was absolutely terrible as a speaker but she developed a style and an idiom that was easy to mock but full of character and really worked to those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase the u-turn I have only one thing to say you turn if you want to The ladies, not for turning. (laughs) Developing that character is the puzzle for the writer and the most fun part, but also the most difficult part. Tell us about the actual nuts and bolts process of writing a speech with Tony Blair. How would you work together? The first thing to say about it is that it drove everybody else mad because we're both rather last minute Charlies about it. In politics, inevitably, things change at the last minute. It's very fast. And so to prepare a speech two months in advance is a total waste of time it got serious with about 10 days to go and then he'd start to engage he'd actually be thinking about it and early on I used to make the mistake of I'd present the first draft and he'd always say oh no no, I didn't want that I wanted this this and this and this and I would at first I'd say no but it's all in there it's there and then I realized the thing to do was to say yes okay absolutely fine and then present him with essentially the same draft the following day, at which point you go, yeah, yeah, that's much more like it. That's what I wanted. And then we'd get to the day of the speech, and I'd get into Downing Street very early in the morning. There'd just be me and the Prime Minister there, and he would then start to write bits for himself. And he would usually write the very beginning of the speech, and he'd usually write a conclusion, a sort of rousing end. And then the body of the speech in the middle would be what I'd done. That's sort of how it ended up being most of the time. And it shouldn't have worked. It was a ramshackle process, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody, but it just sort of did work. Is there a part of the speech last week you're particularly proud of, a line or two, or a passage that you thought worked particularly well? The bit I loved was the very end. I mean, I really liked it because it was really unconventional. Because instead of ending on a on a massive, rousing, barnstorming lady, it ended on a sort of diminuendo. It's a bit like Monty Python suddenly discovering you didn't have to end a sketch with a punchline. So he went back to the four principles which had informed his life. Work, care, equality, security. These these are the tools tools of my trade and with them I will go to work. Thank you, conference. And I loved that because I liked the the return of the idea of, of the tool which had been a theme throughout but in a different format, the tools of my trade. And the inspiration for that comes from a Seamus Heaney poem, Diggings. And he writes about himself sitting in his study with his pen 
a squat pen between my forefingers. And then he looks out and he imagines his dad and his dad before him digging out there. And he thinks about them and about his own life and how he's different from them. And then he returns to the pen. He says, you know, and here's my pen. My pen sits between my forefingers. I'll dig with it. And it's exactly that same idea that, you know, he's carrying on the tradition from his dad but these are the tools of his trade and with them he'll go to work i was going to ask you if there's a passage that you thought didn't work as well when you heard it in the hall would you go there is there something you sort of yeah i I would it's always the same bits the policy bits are very very difficult to bring to life they're always hard i mean if you don't include them everybody will write up that you have nothing to say that you're empty so you do include them in the knowledge that probably then everyone's going to say, oh, it's so boring <laughs> when you got into all that stuff. So those bits, I think, were, if I'm critical, could have been tighter, could have been more compressed. I think they were a bit long, a little bit baggy. Those were the bits I think could have been better. We can catch problems early and at the same time we can use the resources of the NHS better. And is it hard watching just... the critical reaction to something you've spent weeks and weeks crafting on it you know it's it's sort of your baby and suddenly everyone's got something to say on it and some people obviously do like it and some people don't it can be but then you just have to get used to that and actually on this occasion we were very pleased with the critical reaction because remember the great line of dora gateskill in 1962 when hugh gateskill gave a very critical speech about the european union and, and his wife dora said all the wrong people are cheering And well, on this occasion, I thought all the right people were cheering and all the right people were also miserable. So a lot of the criticism was exactly the criticism I was hoping for. The one thing everyone did agree on was that it probably went on a little bit too long. It sounds like you might agree with that as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All those people clapping all the time. I mean, it it was obviously far too good. And so people enjoyed it far too much and therefore therefore detained those poor lobby journalists for half an hour longer than they thought. Oh, my heart bleeds for them. Well, that's us told. Coming up in part two, we'll take a closer look at some of the great and not so great political speeches of recent years. We'll hear how to structure a speech, how to pick your moment to deliver one, and on the all-important role that humour has to play. Stay with us. The pandemic has reinforced the importance of collaboration. Facebook has helped governments in more than 150 countries communicate public health messaging by providing more than £85 million in free advertising and training. The UK government and others around the world are using these free Facebook and Instagram ads to share authoritative, multilingual COVID-19 information. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. So the first question I had about speechwriters as I started researching this episode was, why the hell do we need them? Like, surely our best politicians are capable of stringing a few sentences together without any help. And wouldn't it be a bit more, well, honest if they did it themselves? Well, let's take Barack Obama. Barack Obama gave about 500 speeches a year. In four years, that's 2,000 speeches. You would not want your president to be sitting at home, even if he's a great writer, writing speeches all the time. He's got to run the country. This is Bob Lehrman, a novelist who spent decades writing speeches in Washington for big-name politicians, corporate chief execs and other DC power players. 
At the height of his career, he was working in the Clinton White House as chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. He now teaches speechwriting at American University in Washington and has literally written the book on all this stuff, The Political Speechwriter's Companion. I spoke to him via Zoom from his home in D.C. If you ask people to name the speeches they remember, they'll give you speeches that are associated with famous events. Kennedy inaugural. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Martin Luther King dream speech. We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Churchill at Dunkirk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. But really, there is a lot that goes into speeches that do not deal with great events. They may not be remembered, but they can be pretty brilliant. They deal with different issues, but they are almost always persuasive speeches and about policy issues. 99% of all political speeches are speeches that aim to persuade. Politicians run for office. They want people to believe that what they're doing is the right thing. And for audiences that are sympathetic, they want the audiences to know that they have their interests at heart. And to what extent is each speech focused on a specific audience? You have to know the audience. You have to know what they understand, what they know, what they believe. And that will determine, if I'm a speechwriter, what kinds of issues I'm going to use and what I'm going to concentrate on, too. Now, in the United States, Americans read at about a seventh grade level. And so you will see speechwriters writing at a seventh grade level. In 2016, people were criticizing Trump. They said Trump's speeches were just too basic and Hillary Clinton's were skillful. But actually, if you looked at them, they were just about at the same level. If it's your family, it's a big deal. And it should be a big deal to your president, too. These are people who work hard, but no longer have a voice. I am your voice. There are readability stats in your computer if you're using Word. They can tell you what grade level you're writing at, how many people are likely to understand, whether you're using passive voice, which you as a journalist know is the quickest way to put people to sleep, the speechwriter Peggy Noonan writes for Republicans. I don't agree with anything she says, except that she says, keep your sentences 10 to 12 words long. Think about one syllable, two syllable words and use story. I agree with all that. If you're sitting down with a blank piece of paper, you're writing a speech for vice president or whoever. Is there a sort of starting point where you always start? Is there a structure where you're like, I know how I'm going to build this thing out? Or is it a different process every time? There is a structure for persuasive speech. And it actually has a name because it's become so popular. It's called Monroe's Motivated Sequence. It was devised in the 1940s by a rhetoric scholar named Alan Monroe. And it has five steps. First, win attention. Audiences are fickle. If you don't get their attention right away, you're in trouble. Then most speeches in political life are persuasive. There's a problem. 
Step two would be a problem. Step three would be a solution. And then Monroe said, you know, this is not a legal brief. Give them some vision of the future, what it will be like if your proposals are adopted. And then finally, don't let them off the hook. There's a call to action. And you can see that with Martin Luther King's vision of the future, I have a dream. And you'll notice in that speech how often he repeats himself. You know, in sixth grade, maybe people will tell their students, don't repeat yourself. Well, in political speech writing, repetition is a source of power. And so there's a reason that Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, not one time, but five times, because he can get more intense each time and carry his audience along. As sisters and brothers, I have a dream today. So that process you've just set out there for a speech, you get their attention, then you set out a problem, then you say what the solution is, then you give them a vision and a call to action of how to how to achieve it. Do most political speeches actually look like that if you deconstruct them? Most modern ones do, yes. Now, Monroe didn't really invent this out of whole cloth. You can look in the Old Testament and you can see Moses' speech to the Israelites before they crossed the River Jordan. That's, a, that's Monroe. Uh, I don't think he knew about Monroe at the time, <laughs> but, but uh, that's what the speech is like. At the very start of that, you get their attention. What kind of tricks might you use if you're writing a, a speech for a politician and you want to get people's attention at the start? The thing that I look for all the time when I'm writing speeches is story. There are many different ways you can start a story. Startling statistic, uh, thank yous to the audience. The thing that gets attention most is story, and it not only gets attention right then, it makes people pay attention much more for the rest of the speech. So Oprah Winfrey gave a great speech uh, to Golden Globe uh, Awards. She didn't say, oh, it's a great, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. You're a great audience. All the things that people can normally do. She started out, she said, it was 1964. I was, I was a little girl on sitting Island. on the linoleum floor of my mother's house in Milwaukee, watching Anne Bancroft present the Oscar for Best Actor at the 36th Academy Awards. She opened the envelope and said five words that literally made history. The winner is Sidney Poitier. So I've shown that to students the and they start the crying. Story is the most important way to begin speeches. Looking back through some of the best-received speeches I've covered during my career as a journalist, it's amazing how many of them stick closely to Bob's rules of thumb. One famous example is David Cameron's speech to the Conservative Party conference in 2007. Prime Minister Gordon Brown was miles ahead in the opinion polls and on the verge of calling a snap general election that many believed would have wiped out the Tories and ended Cameron's fledgling career. Standing before the Tory faithful in Blackpool with his political future on the line, the 40-year-old Cameron gave what was undoubtedly one of the speeches of his life. Two years ago, I stood on this stage and I gave a speech, a short speech, about why I wanted to lead our party. Today, I want to make a speech about why I want to lead our country. I'm afraid it's going to be a bit longer, and I haven't got an auto cue, and I haven't got a script. I've just got a few notes. 
So it might be a bit messy, but it will be me. After that attention-grabbing start, Cameron, sure enough, goes straight into a personal story. When I left school, I'd travelled through the Soviet Union, through the Eastern Bloc, and I'll never forget the dull uniformity, the greyness of life under communism. The lack of choice, the lack of freedom, the lack of expression. Then comes the problem, a stale Labour government led by a Prime Minister cynically seeking re-election. Boy, has this guy got a plan. It's to appeal to that 4% of people in the marginal seats with a dog whistle on immigration there, a word about crime here, wrap yourself up in the flag, talk about Britishness enough times, and maybe, just maybe, you'll convince enough people that you are on their side. Well, I say God, we've got to be better than that. Then his solutions his grand vision of the future, a stripped-back state, family values, law and order, the usual stuff. We can get a great NHS if we make doctors answerable to patients and not to politicians. We can get great schools if we break open the state monopoly, allow new schools in and insist on high standards. We can get safer streets if we strengthen our families and get the police onto our streets. We can get and it finally, if we really climactically, the call to action, to but unusually aimed at the Prime Minister himself. So, Mr Brown, what's it going to be? Why don't you go ahead and call that election? We will fight. Britain will win. Now, when Cameron told the party faithful he had no script for his speech, he was, of course, stretching the truth, just a little. Although he delivered the speech without notes or auto-cue, it had in fact been written over several weeks by a team of speechwriters in Tory HQ, headed up by Amit Gill, now co-founder of comms firm Hanbury Strategy. What makes a good speech... I always say there's a few things, right? You need a, a compelling argument. You often do need a structure that takes people to that argument and they don't get lost. You need a sort of turn of phrase as well, which people remember. A sense of drama as well. You know, the time, the place, the context is always quite important. And then obviously, finally, the delivery. And I think that 2007 speech uh, had all five, actually. It had a big argument about the future direction of the country a change that was required and how Gordon Brown was more in the past. It had a, you know, compelling turns of phrases, not least at the end when he kind of called on Gordon Brown to call that election. And obviously the drama and the delivery, you know, because of that context, I think that was one of the best speeches he gave, actually. For about a month, we had been working on that in quite an intensive way. But it was only in the final week that David Cameron started taking that draft and kind of really... Much I was trying to learn it and trying to, you know, be in a position where he could go out on stage and give it without notes. Very few people knew he was going to do that, actually, until the morning of the speech, which also internally as a team added to the sense of occasion drama. Just tell us what it was like watching that, having been so involved in the writing of it, knowing what a big deal it was, thinking, you know, if this doesn't go well and then there is an election, we might well lose and we're all out of a job. So it must have been a huge sense of drama amongst your team, having written it yourselves. It was. I think of all the speeches I have seen live in person, it was definitely the most extraordinary one I've seen. There was a huge amount of tension and drama in the hall. When you're watching it, actually, quite funny enough, the most important thing is like the first couple of minutes is when you feel the most nervous because you are watching out and you're looking at David Cameron in this respect and going, is he going to be able to deliver this as well as we hope? And it became very clear from the very beginning in the first couple of minutes that he was actually hitting his stride and he was going to deliver this in a confident way. But change 
Real change isn't just about winning elections. Real change is about getting ready to govern our country. Though I remember Real subsequently after the speech, he did say to us, there was one moment when he completely lost his train of thought and he started getting very worried and people were clapping. He was like, oh my God, what do I say next? But he managed to pull it off. And I do still distinctly remember, and I was quite young at that time, at the end of that speech, I remember saying, so Mr Brown, what's it going to be? Why don't you call that election? And the atmosphere in the hall at that time was pretty extraordinary. And actually, I even thought to myself then, it's like, the Prime Minister of the day, Gordon Brown, is not going to call this election after this conference and after that speech. In sharp contrast to that was another big speech Cameron gave two years later, again at Tory conference, but this time in Manchester, where the mood could hardly have been more different. This was October 2009. The country was in economic freefall and the Tories were marching towards power. The country had just gone through the financial crash, it was in a recession, and one of the things that David Cameron wanted to project and had to project was a statesmanlike approach to the job and a seriousness. I remember very clearly we decided deliberately not to have any jokes in the speech at all, which for those who listen to a lot of conference speeches know that one of the key things you need to do is, you know, project some humour, but we didn't think that was appropriate. But quite apart from that, I actually think this is one of Cameron's most important speeches that he ever gave. Because it just didn't set the terms of the debate for the election. It arguably set the terms of the debate, or economic debate at least, in our country until this day. Because it's where David Cameron sets out the argument for deficit reduction, for fiscal responsibility, the need to grip the public finances while laying at Labour's door the blame for the country's economic woes. Say what you like about David Cameron and George Osborne. At their best, they knew how to frame political arguments. And here is the big argument in British politics today. Labour say that to solve the country's problems, we need more government. Don't they see? It is more government that got us into this mess. Why is our economy broken? Government got too big, spent too much and doubled the national debt. For most of his time as Prime Minister, of course, David Cameron's principal opponent at the dispatch box would not be Gordon Brown, but his successor as Labour leader, Ed Miliband. Now, you might not always have noticed it, but Miliband actually gave, on occasions, pretty decent speeches and could even be properly funny. Much of that, we now know, was because he employed an actual stand-up comedian as a speechwriter, the columnist and presenter Aisha Hazarika. I asked her why humour was so important in the speeches she wrote, both for Miliband and for her other boss in the Labour Party, Deputy Leader Harriet Harman. It's so important. I think humour conveys an intelligence. That's why it's called wit. And that sends a, a kind of a note of reassurance to the audience as well. I think if you're seen as being too earnest, people feel quite uncomfortable about that. You know, I think nobody wants to be preached at. You have to kind of earn the permission to start lecturing people. And I think you do that by humour. If you start with some humour as well, it settles the audience. Because a leader's speech 
it is different from any other speech. It is a moment of performance. You know, people queue, they get the sandwiches in, they have to go to the toilet beforehand, everyone has to have like a snack in case it goes on for 90 minutes, you know. You know, they have to have like deep vein thrombosis tablets and, you know, flight socks. I mean, people are strapping themselves in for a long, long time. And so they don't want you to go straight to your like 10 point plan on like the energy markets. You need to sort of settle them and humor is a great way to settle people but also humor is such an important way of distilling big ideas and big values you know a good political joke works because it has a sting of truth in it and it's a joke which everyone will laugh at you know even if somebody has totally different political values to you if you nail a good political joke which has truth to it it's always brilliant. Like in the House of Commons, the best jokes are when both sides of the house fall about laughing, even if it is sort of against them. Do you remember that amazing moment when William Hague did this thing about like Gordon Brown's horror at the prospect of Tony Blair becoming the sort of EU like supremo and the cavalcade rolls into number 10? And then just- also <laughs> is not difficult even for the humblest student of politics. And it is, of course, rumoured that one Tony Blair may now be interested in the job. Now, if that makes us uncomfortable on these benches, just imagine how it is viewed in Downing Street. And I... I must warn ministers opposite that having tangled with Tony Blair across this dispatch box on literally hundreds of occasions, I know his mind almost as well as they do. I can tell them that when he goes off to a major political conference of a centre-right party and simultaneously refers to himself as a socialist, he is on manoeuvres. And he is... He is busily... He is busily building coalitions as only he can. And we can all picture the scene at a European Council sometime next year. Picture the face of our poor Prime Minister as the name of Blair is placed in nomination by one President and Prime Minister after another. The look of utter gloom on his face. The nauseating, glutinous praise oozing from every head of government. The rapid revelation of a majority view agreed behind closed doors when he was, as usual, excluded. Never would he regret more no longer being in possession of a veto. The famous... <laughs> the famous drop jaw almost hitting the table as he realises there is no option but to join in. And then the awful moment when the motorcade of the President of Europe sweeps into Downing Street. The gritted teeth and bitten nails. The Prime Minister emerging from his door with a smile of intolerable anguish. <laughs> the choking sensation as the words Mr President are forced out of his mouth. And then... Then, once in the Cabinet Room, the melodrama of when will you hand over to me all over again. And the brilliant thing about it was... David Miliband, who was facing William, he was in stitches. I think the Labour side was corpsing as much as the Tory side was because it was just brilliant because it was so true. I guess Ed Miliband isn't someone who people would instantly think of as being naturally hilarious, if I'm not being too mean to Ed Miliband. Not intentionally. Not... <laughs> well, indeed. Did you have to coach him to use your jokes well? 
So with both Ed and Harriet, I would say nobody would look at either of them and be like, aha, Harriet giggles Harmon or Ed giggles Middlebad. But everybody has got the capacity to be funny. But you have to, as a good speechwriter, you have to coax out of them what's authentic for them in terms of humour. So there's no point, like, me writing basically the political equivalent of, like, a knob gag for Harriet. Like, that's just not going to work with her sort of style. In the same way, like, Ed is not some alpha sort of locker room boy. You know, that's just... So I would also have lots of chats with them about what they were thinking about things, what had they observed... Had they done anything particularly sort of amusing so we could weave an anecdote? And once you get the kernel of truth, you can then exaggerate and build a joke around it. Can I say to her, if she's looking for a new challenge, she should try wrestling a bacon sandwich. (laughs) Politicians, you know, can be funny, but they just have to work on crafting a story which feels authentic And they do have to just be comfortable with giving it a bit of a go. I remember when I first started working for Harriet, she was really nervous about doing jokes and she was very much seen as sort of a champion of equalities, which she still is. And I remember trying to get her to do some kind of silly joke at a reception and she was like, Aisha, we do not do these kind of jokes because it's very cruel for the butt of the joke and we are trying to be nice human beings. We don't want to be, we don't want to be beasts to people. And I was like, oh God. And I said, okay, well, just try the joke at the reception and see how it goes. And of course, she tried the joke. Everyone loved it. She's like, I want more jokes. I want to be, we've got to make fun of more people. <laughs> if I'm looking for advice on what to wear or what not to wear. I think the very last person I would look to advice is the man in the baseball cap. But needless to say, it doesn't always work out that way. The danger for every speechwriter is that you put weeks and weeks into crafting the most powerful piece of prose with the perfect structure and the killer jokes and then wallop your boss takes to the podium and makes a complete and utter horlicks of it. Now, I don't want to dwell on the most famous example of recent times, simply because even four years later, listening back to it is almost unbearable. But with government, businesses and the public sector working together, we have bounced back. We've created record numbers of jobs. Ugh. But before Theresa May's cough, of course, we had Ed Miliband's brain fade. The 2014 Labour conference address where, having attempted to memorise the entire speech a la Cameron, he promptly forgot the most important bit altogether, the section on the state of the British economy. It was the last speech before the general election and we had practised and practised and practised and practised this speech like... I could have done this speech because I knew it literally word by word. And so we're in the conference hall and it's all going very well. And we're like, this is good, this is good, this is good. Well, whatever the weather. I'm talking about families like yours who are treading water, working harder and harder just to stay afloat. For Labour, this election is about you. And then suddenly it's like, something seems to be missing. And I'm like, hmm. And I turn around and I can see the panic in like other advisors' eyes, who, of course, we all know the speech off my heart. We're like, shit, where's the bit on the deficit? Where's the deficit gone? 
Has it suddenly shrunk? Has it disappeared? Or is it no deficit? It was just that awful moment, that mortifying moment. And I could see in his eyes as well, there was like a flicker, but it was sort of too late by this point. And it was like, no, 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 no. I really felt for him at that moment. We were all dying inside. We were trying to convince ourselves it was no... I know Labour's not seen as being very economically competent. The fact that we forgot the bit on the deficit, no biggie, no biggie. It was just, this is terrible. Um, And, you know, you've held your hands up and said, yeah, you know, it it was a speech and I didn't remember all of it. How could you not remember to talk about the economy? Well, I, it, the speech was all about the economy, actually, Susanna. Yeesh. Really important a morning after interview which made the bacon sandwich episode look comfortable. Still, such moments of catastrophe are mercifully rare. And for the most part, speechwriters actually face the opposite problem. Their best lines are usually delivered perfectly and may even become a celebrated part of our political discourse. Yet nobody out there knows who really held the pen. I finished by asking Bob Lehrman if he ever resented watching those pesky politicians taking all the praise for his work. Yes, I do feel that way. (laughs) Um, You know, speakers a lot of times don't like to publicise the fact that they have speechwriters. I remember one time Bill Clinton walked over to his speechwriter after the State of the Union speech and he said to the group that was there, he said, here's the guy who typed my speech. You know... I like the Obama approach better. Obama, if you read his memoir, is really open about who wrote his speeches and how the process gets done. And I think that's a much more honest approach. But if you're asking me if I ever get uh, really annoyed, uh, you're right, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely would. So next time you're enjoying a political address, Spare a thought for the humble speechwriters, hidden away from the public by politicians eager to collect all the credit. And keep a lookout too for the techniques they deploy to construct a great political speech. The way they grab your attention right from the start. The way they use jokes and personal story to keep your interest and to develop both character and wider argument. The way they set up a problem and tell you how to solve it. The way they frame a big argument and tell you only they can win it. The way they keep returning to the same theme, the same phrase, the same play on words, again and again and again. And the way they finish with a rousing call to action, inspiring you, imploring you to get out and vote for their vision. Speechwriting is, after all, an art form. And it would be sad indeed if, in a world of viral memes and 20-second social media clips, it was one which we allowed to fizzle out. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's it now for season three. But while Ellie and I take a much-needed break for just a few short weeks, why not have a look back through our previous episodes to see if there's any others you might enjoy? My producer, as usual, was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back later in the autumn with a whole new season of episodes, and I'll see you then.